Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Attorney Vincent Davis, and this is Get Your Kids Back Now. We're trying to fight CPS and win. This show is dedicated to keeping families together and to fighting the tyranny of CPS and DCFS social workers. A secondary purpose of the show is to educate parents and relatives or to at least show them where to get the necessary information for their fight. The final purpose of the show is to remind the people that change can be effectuated at the ballot box, at the state and federal levels. Let us unite, vote, and elect those who will make the necessary changes. Good morning, everyone. Today, we're going to be taking calls, and we're going to be uh, talking about Uh, some key points that everyone should know in a uh, DCFS case. Um, This week, I had a chance to speak to a person who has a DCFS slash CPS case here in California. And these are the facts, generally, as they were presented to me. The person is a grandmother and When the children were first detained from the mother, father's whereabouts were allegedly unknown, um, the grandmother went to court and has been trying to get the children placed in her care. Now, this is a story I hear quite often from people not only all over Los Angeles County, but all over the state of California and even all over the country. For whatever reason, the social workers have been delaying and delaying and delaying children with the grandmother. However, what has been happening is the social worker has been assuring for almost a year now, has been assuring the grandmother that the children will be placed with her. Well, we are more than a year into the case and the children haven't been placed with her And the children, um, there is going to be what's called a 366.26 hearing in about three weeks. And at that point in time, the children, excuse me, the parental rights of the mother and the father are going to be terminated. Under current California law, and I say that because there's some talk about maybe changing it, under current California law, once the rights of the parents are terminated, the grandmother is no longer the grandmother, and there are no rights as a grandmother. So the grandmother finally was advised by someone that she better speak to an attorney. She called around and um, spoke to several attorneys. One of them uh, referred her to me. Now, the first thing I told the grandmother was, there are several things you must do immediately. So everyone get a pencil and a piece of paper or a pen and a paper and write this down. You must file a de facto status motion. A lot of attorneys will tell you you can't file a de facto status motion because you've never taken care of the child. Well, there is a case called Ray Charles S. out of California that says if you're a relative and you're interested in the child, you can seek standing, and I call that a relative de facto motion. So you can Google that case, in Ray Charles S. Period. 
The second thing that you must do is you must file a 388 to have the child immediately placed with you. Now, in this particular case, which is not always true, the grandmother has no criminal convictions. She has no child abuse reports. So by all standards, she's what we call non-offending in a clean background. Um, I'm not sure why the children haven't been placed with her. The grandmother alleges that through some digging, and I don't know that this is true or not, but this is what she alleges, that the foster parents who have the children are friends of a social worker in the office. Now, that's interesting because I have heard these allegations before. Um, children not placed with relatives, but they're placed with allegedly friends of social workers. And, you know, the social workers want to help them, help their friends keep the children and adopt the children. There's money involved, there's companionship, there's love, there's all those types of emotions. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that this is true. I'm saying this is what some people sometimes allege, and I have heard it on more than one occasion in my career. The next thing that the, uh, the grandmother should do is she should file a petition so that um, she gets copies of all of the records and minute orders and social worker reports in this case regarding these children. Remember, th these cases are confidential and you're not entitled to the uh, records and reports and minute orders unless you're a party to the case. And by party to the case, I mean unless you're the social worker, the minor's attorney, um, the father or mother's attorney. You have no rights in these cases unless you ask the court for, for specific rights. Here she's at, she should ask for a copy of the court file. This reminds me of a similar case when I was representing relatives in San Diego County. Um, I was forced to do a trial where the county and other attorneys had access to social worker reports and minute orders. And some of the social worker reports had evidence that put my client in a bad light. I was not entitled to see those records and there was no way that I could defend my client with respect to um, these charges and allegations. I wanted to take the case up on appeal because we did lose that case, but my clients were so disenchanted uh, about the court system and you know their their sense of justice. They thought this is America. How could this be happening to them? But it did. The next thing that um, the grandmother should do is she should file uh, petitions for temporary and permanent guardianship. And a lot of people, judges included, disagree with me on the filing of these types of petitions. Um, I believe that the law is very gray in this area. Um, some would say it's clear that you cannot do it. I disagree with those people and that legal opinion. And I think that these uh, parents should be, or grandparents and relatives should be allowed to have hearing with respect to guardianship. Additionally, um, the last thing that the grandmother, I told the grandmother that she should do is um, she should file what's called a JV 285 and get all the friends and relatives that are interested in doing this or seeing the children and caring for the children file these JB-285s. Now, I do this in cases, and sometimes they become moot. But I've never seen a hearing held on a JB-285. It's almost as if it's a foreign alien document that nobody wants to acknowledge. Um, 
that's just me. I'm not in every case. There may be courts and attorneys that have had hearings with respect to JD-285s that have been filed. I've just never seen it uh, personally. The, all of these things should be filed. And I was talking to a woman yesterday from Alabama, I believe. And, you know, I told her I wasn't a, a lawyer in Alabama, but if she were in California, these were the types of things that she would need to file and that she should find an attorney there in Alabama that might be able to help her file similar things or the same things if they have these uh, procedures in Alabama. But she, she asked me a very interesting question, and she said, well, now that you've told me what to do, Mr. Davis, how do I do that? And I thought for a second, I said, well, you have about five hours you know, it would take me that long to try to explain these things to you. And if you don't have any experience uh, in legal procedures in the juvenile courtroom, if you don't have any knowledge of legal things, procedure, rules of evidence, rules of procedure, and the substantive law, you're going to have to talk to an attorney. So one of the things that I suggested to her is to contact her local bar association in the biggest county near her, for example, if she were in L.A., it would be the Los Angeles County Bar Association or the San Diego County Bar Association or the Las Vegas Bar Association or the Phoenix Bar Association. And once you contact them, most bar associations around the country have programs where they can um, connect people that need lawyers with lawyers who have experience. And usually those connections are free, free consultation, or there's a moderate um, nominal cost $25 or $50 for you to get a consultation. It is well worth the investment, and I call it an investment, not a cost, the investment for you to speak to an attorney who has experience in those areas. So those are all of the things that if you're a relative, you're going to have to consider. You're going to have to talk to an attorney and speak to them. If you want to talk to me, you can give us a call at 888 and you can give me a call and we give free consultations. Right now I'm gonna take the first call um, on our board. It's area code 909, ending in 5-6. Good morning, you're on with attorney Vince Davis. Did you have a story to tell or a question to ask? Good morning. Okay, maybe that's just the person who wanted to listen. We'll go to the next call. Area code 760, ending in 00. Uh, good morning. Uh, this yes, is it, yes, yes, good morning. Uh, my, my uh, I don't know if it's a story, it's, it's, I see it as a problem. Uh, my son goes to a psychiatrist. He's seven years old. He's got an IEP. Um, and uh, I just requested the notes from the psychiatrist because the court order reads that uh, we're supposed to uh, make sure continue giving the medication for our son. When the, I showed up to an appointment that was scheduled at 12:30, I noticed that they had already separated. Um, had got he sent me a message saying, "Where are you?" And it was like 12 something. I thought that was really odd. He was already inside with our son, but. And as soon as I walked in, um, the psychiatrist says, well, uh, he, he is going to be giving the medication. He's not going to give the medication on the weekends. And I thought, well, that's against court order. But I didn't say anything. I let her finish. 
And uh, she says, uh, what are you going to be doing? And I said to her, well, the medication is, ex- you told me the medication is extra release, extended release. She says, uh, I never said that. And, and then she, and I said, well, I'm going to give it to him all the days, all the days. Well, I went to verify the bottle at home. I spoke to, I called the pharmacist. I went down to the pharmacist and it's extended release. So I requested the records to see what's on there, and it doesn't say anything that she said anything about the extended release. She never said anything about him requesting no weekends or her stating that it was going to be Monday through Friday, nothing. Um, but I, I've um, sometime after the first appointment or second session with her last year, I noticed she's, as it is, she's really stoic question if she doesn't want to answer you she's not going to answer you but there was a situation between that my daughter said to me last year and she said my daughter touched me I took her down to the hospital they did a forensic interview uh, and they said you know nothing happened I mean she didn't say anything uh, and it's true she's never said anything since that day um, but she kept having nightmares, which is unusual, and she was crying. I mean, everything. So, anyways, I was on the I the doctor made a referral to San Diego uh, Radies, and on that day, an hour later, I get a call from the CPS worker saying to me, "Well, we're going to close the case because you know she never said anything." And then she says to me, "And if you continue saying these things." You're going to make them believe it. And then I said to her, my, my, uh, our daughter had, had something that happened. My mother witnessed it. And so I just let her know about it again. And she says, um, you know something? I didn't know about that. Why don't you call the 800 number? I was dumb enough to do it. When I did that, I, you know, they asked me so many questions. I answered them. Of course, I didn't think, why shouldn't I give her, the CPS worker, the information? Well, when I did that, they sent her to my house, and she says, I'm here investigating you for, I don't understand everything she said. I think she said for taking the kids to doctors where they shouldn't be going to or they shouldn't have to, um, something to that effect. So now, since I'm going through a divorce, my husband, I believe, is, working with them uh, to see how they, how I can lose custody of the kids. And um, my problem is when I, there was, uh, when I went to a psychiatric place last year, um, they said, you know, we're going to go to school. This social worker is going to go to school, which is part of their, their services and work with him and work on his uh, coping skills. Well, that never happened. This was last year in the summer. She hadn't gone there. She went once, and then she says, well, he refused to talk to me. I go, this doesn't make sense. Our son is a talker. He talks. That's the problem he has in school is that he talks too much. He interrupts. So I couldn't understand why she couldn't get him to talk. So now she's only seen him twice, once at the park, once at the school, and they did a puzzle. So she's still working on getting his trust. Meanwhile, um, and of course, my current husband, he's, uh, I'm sure she's been, he's been talking to all the doctors. And so I said to the psychiatric place, 
I court order says that we both need to be made aware of what's discussed with our child, everything that has to be done. So if you're having any meeting with him or with me, uh, we need to, you need to make a report so that I know what you said to him so that I'm aware of it. And then she says, from then on, why don't we meet together? Uh, because um, the social worker goes to your home and, you know, and goes over, I don't know, I guess he talks to the child. I don't really don't know what to do at the house. Um, let me try to give you information, but um, they've been to my home, um, and since I moved, they've been to all my homes. They've never been to, mis- to my husband's home, uh, which I don't understand why not. Um, I had to move, and I'm living in a one bedroom with my mother and my sister, and we've got two kids. And um, so, if is would it be okay to record because what she's telling us at the session is not what's being it doesn't show on the rec, on the on the paper um, because had she said to me had I said got along with what he says that he wants to give the medication he only wants to give the medication when he's in school when he went to an IEP meeting over him he stated you know that he gives the medication only on the days he goes to school and then the social worker corrected him and said no. The medication is Monday through Friday, and um, but it you know it's now reflected on the report. So could I record? Um, and because she also wrote down there that I was mad uh, when I when I walked in and and I said that being present and I didn't go into detail. She was very upset. I remember that's the way she, I think maybe that's the way she is. I don't know. Um, like I said, the first appointment was really good, but after that, uh, there was some standoffish cold. So I don't know if that's how she is, but this is the first time we've ever we've seen her last year. Um, would it be okay to record her here in California? Well, here, that's an interesting question. And the the law in California actually is you cannot record a person without their permission. Uh, and that's a penal code, so it's a crime actually to do so. However, okay. there are some exceptions. For example, if it's the commission of a felony, for example, if somebody's threatening to kill you and cause you bodily harm, you can record them without their permission. But it doesn't sound like the, the scenario that you've described to me would fall in one of those exceptions. Um, I tell that to people all the time, and, you know, everyone has a smartphone that records, and uh, mm-hmm. a lot of people don't listen to me and do record it. Um, it but I want to tell you, if you do that in California, um, it is a crime. You can be punished by um, a criminal. Uh, you can go to jail. You can be fined. Uh, and if you do so, um, it's not admissible evidence in any California proceeding. So right. if you record the social, I mean, the therapist saying ABC, but then writing in a report XYZ, you can't use the recording to, you know, oh, challenge that okay. report. And then okay. on top of that, you could be you could be reported to the district attorney or the city attorney and prosecuted for a crime. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't want to do that. What I have seen done, you know, people uh, try to get around that rule is, They'll send an email to the person. For example, you send an email to the therapist and say, look, 
I just want to warn you that I am going to be recording all of our conversations. And that may put her on notice. Some people have argued, though, you have to tell them each time you're about to record. But, you know, some people argue, well, I said, I told you in an email or a letter that I'm going to record every conversation we have. So some people try to get it around that way. But here's what happens usually. You have your, you know, your recording device out, and you tell the, tell the person, hey, I'm recording our conversation. And they say, no, you can't do it, but they keep talking. So they know they're being recorded even, they, even though they say, um, no, you can't record me. So, um, you know, it's arguable that they do know that you're recording them and that it may be able to be used against them. Not too long ago, there was a, a bill or a, a law, a proposed law that was um, put before the state legislature here in California. And basically, it said that everyone had the right to record a social worker, whether you asked them or didn't ask them. Um, unfortunately, that, uh, that law did not pass. So it is not the law in California, and you can't record a social worker unless you ask their permission. A lot of people say that, you know, I tell, tell that to a lot of people, and a lot of people tell me, well, when I told the social worker I was going to record, they basically ended the conversation or walked away, which is interesting because, you know, I mean, it is a right. It's a privacy right. It's interesting that a, a public official wouldn't want to be recorded. I had a, a very interesting case years ago. This is years ago. And the, um, the recording, I mean, the law was still the same. You couldn't record and what happened was I, I went to court on what was called a six-month review, and my client had told me before the hearing, don't worry, the social worker says I'm getting the child back, I've done everything, blah, blah, blah. So I go to court, and I, I grab the report. I think, no big deal, we got this one. And I'm reading the report, and the report is completely negative against the mother. And it says, you know, uh, she shouldn't get the child back. And I tell my client, my client swears up and down that that's not true, blah, blah, blah. Well, the judge said, hey, you know, instead of having a setting up for trial, Mr. Davis, why don't we just continue it for another report from the social worker? Maybe there was some miscommunication. Well, my client meets again with the social worker. Social worker says the same thing. Oh, don't worry, you're doing great. You're going to get your kid back. We go back to court. New report, the supplemental report, says the exact opposite. I think we went through this like three or four times. Finally, finally, my client tells me, hey, I recorded the whole conversation. And this was before the advent of these smartphones. Uh, the client had a little pocket, um, you know, miniature recording device. You can still buy them, as a matter of fact, at Office Depot and Staples. And I just saw one at Best Buy the other day. Um, okay. and recorded the conversation with the social worker. He let me hear it, and when we went back to court, the report said the same thing, you're doing terrible, you're not going to get the kid. And I, I told the county counsel, you know, hey, my client recorded this. And she said, well, that's illegal, you can't use it. I said, I understand, but, you know, it may fall, I may be able to fit it into one of these exceptions, to make a long story short, this was a very experienced county counsel, and, you know, she liked to do what was right, and uh, she liked to uh, also try to counsel her social workers to do what was right, and um, they finally relented, 
and they changed their recommendation and they get and they gave the child back to my client. Wow. Year, years later, years later, maybe a couple years later, I asked that county council, like, what was up? And and she didn't want to tell me all of the details, but I gathered, you know, it was something between the worker and the worker's supervisor who had never met my client. Um, but oh. in that particular case, having, you know, what I guessed was the worker was saying she was, the client was doing great, give her feedback. The supervisor who had never met the client said, no, don't give her a kid back, write to report, you know, this way instead of that way. And, the, you know, yeah. the county council didn't want to tell me because, you know, it was attorney-client privilege, but that's what I kind of gathered. Um, you know, in a lot of cases, a lot of people don't know this. Uh, social workers will write a report, submit it to their supervisor, and the supervisor makes them change it makes them change wow. it and make, make them come to court and testify the way the supervisor wants. I remember a year or two ago I was cross-examining a social worker on the witness stand, and the social worker kept saying, we determined, we believe, we found, blah, blah, blah. And finally I said to her, I said, well, what do you think personally? And the, to my surprise, the county council in the case objected, and luckily I was able to convince the judge to, you know, I don't, to give me the answer. Like, what do you personally think? And the social worker said something that led me to believe, and I think led the courtroom to believe, that um, she was being told to say something else other than what she believed, you know, and she didn't want to testify uh, against, I guess, what her supervisors were saying. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of control, um, you know, over the social workers in this manner. I have another but question, getting too. Back to your question. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, I noticed that my husband messaged me through what they call the wizard, because that's the only way we're supposed to communicate. He messaged me, and he, he was mad. I don't know what I was asking for, maybe that winter clothes to be returned. I don't remember. But he said, on the, he messaged me, and he said, uh, did the psychiatrist complain, uh, told him that I complain a lot? This must have been when I was out of, not at the office yet, and when they started the meeting before me, and that the CPS had told him that, he, that my husband should be requesting a psychiatric evaluation on me. Now, it, what could I do? This is what I'm saying is I think they're all working to take the children away from me. Or to tell you the truth, I think they're working to take the children away from him too. But uh, because I had filed the restraining order, I ended up dropping it last year thinking, okay, maybe, maybe things are going to get better. And no, I got worse. <laughs> I got worse. Uh, so uh, what in the court order says, says that we can't change doctors without the consent of both of us, which means I can send him a message to wizard, but if he doesn't agree to it or doesn't answer my question, I, I can't change because there's another psychiatrist there that I, that I liked, but they gave us a new one. Um, and about CPS, well, that's, that's, I can't do anything about that, but, what are the laws when they do influence him? And of course, he's—he's he's probably 
recording me and giving every single recording to them to see what they can pick out from what I'm saying. Because I do speak to the kids uh, by court order. Uh, we both do. When the kids are with them, then I'm supposed to, you know, do that. And then when they're with me, I'm supposed to be able to, even though the court order says there's no recording and nobody should be listening. Um, but I'm sure they don't have a copy of that court order. What what laws is there to protect me when I when I I know, but I don't have, of course, evidence other than what the statement he made. But I don't know if that's evidence that they're working to get the kids away from at least me. Right. Well, this is what I would advise you to do. Um, you know, and it's just based upon what you've told us here on the radio. Um, you might want to go get a preemptory uh, psychological evaluation. And, you know, of course, uh, uh, it returns what'd you, a pre-what? To restrike, you know, before it becomes really an issue, you'd go ahead and do your psychological evaluation. And if it comes out oh, good, okay. you know, I would give it to, I would give it to everyone, one, including CPS. Okay. Because Perfect. it sounds like, you know, maybe they are trying to set you up and, you know, um, I mean, we don't know each other, but it sounds like you're lucid right. and, uh, so I would, you know, do you have an attorney? You could, you could talk to your attorney well, about I, that. I do for the for the divorce, the custody. Uh, that's, but I'm not uh, uh, not for. See, I, they haven't come to me and said, "Hey, you know, nothing." They haven't filed nothing. They haven't. I don't have any papers saying anything other than the call from CPSS. Oh no! When they came to my home, and uh, saying that you know you're we're under investigation, but I I don't have anything um, in writing or you know as my attorney or anywhere that says uh, yeah so, or thing like that. You know what I would do is I would talk to your attorney definitely about the possibility of getting that psychological evaluation because if it turns out good, you can not only use it in your family law divorce case. Could also use it with your uh, CPS investigations. By the way, CPS investigations are only supposed to last 30 days, and then they're supposed to close them. So, if your investigation is going past that 30-day mark, you might want to email the social worker and ask her or him, "Can you get a letter that the case is closed to let them know that you know what the law is?" Okay. All right. But these are things that you should also talk with your family law attorney about. Um, I'm sure he or she is experienced and will be able to counsel you in that manner also. If okay. you ever have any questions about a CPS matter, please feel free to give me a call at 888-888-6582, and we'll try to answer your questions, okay? Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for calling in. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. All right, the next call is from... I was trying that number again. 909 ending in 5-6. Are you there to listen? Okay, I'm going to take another call right now from area code 562 ending in 1-7. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Good morning. Can you, you hear me okay? Or I can hear you loud and clear. 
Okay. Did you great. have a story to tell uh, or a question to ask? I have both. <laughs> okay, okay, go ahead. I didn't look. Yeah, that's all right. Um, the um, story is kind of a, it's a kind of discharging story. It's always, it's it's a rough one. I was in economic disaster when I lost everything, and I was going through really hard hard times. And instead of getting professional help from people, the social workers interfered and uh, started trying to make a case out of nothing. And uh, like a fool at the time, I, I couldn't afford an attorney, and so I thought by being open and honest, but they went. They went over the board. They, they they called in the police, the fire department, code enforcement, trying to find something wrong, and it was really sad. It was it was really hard for me to take because, you know, my family was okay. Everybody was still going to school. We still had food, but you know, my my parents were dying. Even my dogs were dying. I was having a really terrible time, and so I was taken to the system. And instead of them helping, it got worse, and I was trying to fight them with correspondence and that though wasn't working at all. In fact, it seemed to make it worse. I tried to meet with them and there, there's so many things. They violated my civil rights from day one. I mean, if I know what I know now and uh, had gotten you early in the game, I think things have been a lot different. But instead I um, was struggling and, uh, and some of the stories were really so bad. They, they put restraining orders on me. The, the police department tried to make it a big case, and it was dragging out and dragging out. And I regret that I should never have done any plea bargaining with anybody. I think anybody's out there, do not agree to anything. Do not talk to people. Do not say, you don't have to say a word to anybody. Um, you need to be represented by a skilled person like Vincent Davis that can sit there, and he knows the, he knows how to get your kids back. And uh, it was to the point where even the social worker was so corrupt. We had this one case where she tried to insinuate that uh, I was violating the restraining order by saying I was in the area, and that was dropped. And uh, it took a year. That's a waste of time. Um, the sad part is, is our daughter was so brainwashed and so abused by the system by uh, the Orange County, by Olive Crest, the Board of Supervisors of Orange County, they knew what had taken place. They've been horrified. It's uh, the judge, the, the attorneys in court, they're all controlled by the system. It's like they're all trying to, they're not there to get the family back or do family reunification. And uh, the sad part, now we get everything back. And my question to you, uh, Vincent, is that we have a, a really great lawsuit, but I don't know, you know, uh, when that's ever going to take place or when it's ever going to get started because um, it, it has, uh, they need to be punished. This is wrong. That's all I have to say. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Did you, um, your case is over now, isn't it? Yes, it is, but the problem is it's still dragging on. The restraining orders are still in place. The police, a simple thing like going to the school district to meet with the, the school people like we've done in the past, now they're reading the restraining orders. One of them has been removed. The other one's still there, and they say, well, you can't be around the school. 
and it's ludicrous because the case plan says I can, my education rights are there, but I've been fully restored with uh, with my family, but they say it's not doing there. But my question to you is, is the, uh, the lawsuit, when can that happen or when's that going to happen? Well, I would like you to give me a call on Monday and we'll talk details, uh, specific details about the lawsuit. Um, you know, there's always a big lawsuit whenever a social worker um, has submitted a report or testified to something that is false. Um, generally, the three areas where there's lawsuits uh, against social workers are, number one, if they decide to detain your children without a court order or a warrant. Um, Number two, if they if the social worker you know lies on the with the stand or tells things that aren't true in social worker reports and files it with the court and those cause you harm and damage, or number three, your children are um, physically or sexually or emotionally abused while in the foster care system. Unfortunately, that happens uh, more times than people think. Uh, I see in my opinion, my personal and professional opinion, um, kids are removed from, you know, uh, parents in what probably is a, you know, marginal or close to marginal situation. And then they're placed in foster care. And they're placed in foster care under the assumption that the children are going to be safe in foster care. And that's a bad assumption. Um, I used to represent uh, a lot of foster parents who were being um, basically their licenses were trying to be taken away or suspended because of some type of physical, sexual, or emotional abuse against the child that was placed with them. And as a matter of fact, uh, when that happens, generally speaking, the juvenile judges don't know this. I'm not even sure the social workers know this. Um, but there are proceedings, legal proceedings in California under the Office of Administrative Hearings. And if you just go online to that website, you can see a lot of social worker hearings coming up every day all over the state of California where social, where foster parents are trying, you know, the state is trying to take their license or um, trying to suspend their license to put, their, put them on probation. I remember many, many, many years ago, I represented a woman, a foster parent, who had caused the death of a child in her care. Now, I'm not sure why the child was taken away from the parents, you know, but I'm sure, I'm pretty sure that the child was going to end up dead, you know, because of something the foster parent did or didn't do. Um so there's a lot of things that happen in foster homes, and we don't, uh, as a system, know because what happens in the Office of Administrative Hearings is not made public and it's not communicated, as far as I know, to juvenile court judges. I remember a situation that happened a few years ago, three or four years ago maybe. Um, my client, I represented a mother who had gotten one of her children back and we were trying to get the other child back in her care. And the other child was um, Caucasian, teenager, maybe about 12 years old. And 
the social worker on this case, uh, for whatever reason, had placed this child in a group home. Um, And I do think there was problems because the child wanted to come back home. She was acting out, I think, at the foster home. So they placed her in a group home. I don't know if this was intentional or not, but they placed her in a home that was uh, all the residents were African-American and uh, Latino. And this woman, uh, this young lady was being um, bullied uh, both physically and emotionally, and they were stealing her belongings uh, at this group home. And the, the, the case came back to court on this, this issue, and I remember having a conference with the judge and all the attorneys, and this judge um, said something that I thought was brilliant. The judge said, you know, maybe I should be checking out the places where I'm sending these kids. You know, basically she's assuming that if she sends these kids to foster homes or group homes that they're going to be safe. Well, that's not necessarily true. And if the public only knew the things that the state of California knows about what foster parents do with foster children, um, I think that a lot of juvenile judges would be hesitant to send kids to foster homes or group homes. And I think um, a lot of social workers would be hesitant to do that because they're sending children to foster homes and group homes, assuming that, you know, they're sending sending the children to a safe place. That's not always true. I hear a lot about uh, cases, and we even have some in our office, where children have been uh, severely injured or abused in a foster home by the foster parent or by another child in the foster home. Uh, here's one that comes up every so often, and you know, I only hear about a few of the cases, so statistically this must happen more than um, you know, I hear about. A child is placed in a foster home with other children, and one or more of those children are what they call delinquents, juvenile, you know, criminals, or the child has, uh, you know, abusive propensities where the child may, you know, beat up another foster child or sexually abuse another foster child. It's always alleged that the social worker knew or should have known at least that this would happen. Now, if a child goes to a foster home and gets uh, abused physically or sexually or or emotionally by another child or by the foster parent or by a relative of a foster parent or by a friend of the foster parent, that could not be worse than leaving the child at home or placed with relatives. I have a case right now where a child was placed with a relative. I think he was a maternal uncle and the child who is now uh, aged out of the system uh, has alleged that she was being sexually abused while placed in the home of her uncle. So we have to be very careful, I think, about, you know, taking these children just, you know, business as usual and placing them in foster homes or away from their mothers and fathers. But I think I digress. Um, Please call me on Monday and I, I need to make an appointment with you to come in and see me so that we can talk specifically about starting the case and, and filing it and uh, moving forward with the civil rights case against the social worker in your case. I want to thank you for calling. Please keep listening.
and I look forward to speaking with you on Monday. All right. Thank you, Vincent, and thank you for all that you do. Thank you. In the show, I want to tell you about a couple of cases that I was involved this week um, in uh, juvenile court. A couple of days ago, I did a trial in juvenile court, and we were able to get uh, two children back to the mother. But let me tell you the facts of this case. The case originally came in more than a year ago into my office, and this mother was alleged to have put her children in harm's way. And by harm's way, I mean it was alleged by the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department that she let her children go to a home where the father lived, knowing or should have known that the father was growing, you know, had 200 medical marijuana plants, or strike the word medical, had 200 marijuana plants growing in his garage, and also had weapons, which turned out to be uh, legally registered weapons in a safe. Well, to make a long story short, it was a fight almost to the death to get the children placed with a relative. And it seemed as if the um, social worker and the the sheriff investigator or detective um, were together to keep the children out of the family home, out of a family's home, family member's home, uh, because they, I think, this is just my opinion, wanted to put the squeeze on the father and have him turn state's evidence to try to testify against, you know, who he allegedly was involved with. And, you know, most people will do anything to get their children out of foster care, mainly for the reasons I just told you about, you know, kids being sometimes abused or neglected in those foster homes. So there came a point in the case at the beginning where the social worker reported that the sheriff said ABC. One of the relatives who these allegations were made against and who the judge was considering placing the children with said those allegations by the sheriff, they're, they're false. They're incorrect. And it was something that one of the things that the, the sheriff said was something that could be verified through the Department of Motor Vehicles. So um, I believe the court found that the social worker's information from the sheriff was incorrect or not true. And the, and the, uh, the judge placed the children with this relative. At the time, the father and the mother, and I represent the mother, had criminal cases pending against them with some serious charges uh, and allegations. So my client chose not, did not want to testify in the juvenile court for fear that something that was said there may or may not be used against her in the criminal court proceeding. So both the father and the mother took a plea deal and the children were placed in a maternal relative's home where my client, the mother, was able to visit frequently. We came around, and, and of course, the judge ordered my client to participate in a rehabilitation uh, or reunification uh, process, which included parenting, individual counseling, and drug testing. 
Well, we came along to the six-month hearing, and the criminal case was still pending. And the social workers were recommending not to place the children in the home of the mother because this criminal case was still pending. I wanted to have a trial. The mother didn't want to because she didn't want to have to testify. And even the judge said, well, Mr. Davis, you know, kids are with the relative. Why don't you just continue it to the 12-month date, and hopefully the criminal matter will be resolved. So that's what we did. This week was the trial on the the 12-month hearing. The social worker was still recommending not to give the children back to the mother and father. The mother and father by this time, um, I think, had gotten divorced, or they are divorced. And uh, so the criminal case had been completely resolved. Uh, Neither parent uh, was in jail, and I think my client received uh, one or two years probation, informal probation, uh, and she uh, took a plea to, uh, I think it was disturbing the peace just so to avoid the necessity of going to trial in the criminal court. So we had the trial, um, and in my opinion, there was no evidence whatsoever um, to stop or prevent the social worker from recommending that your children be at least returned to my client. Uh, We had a, a, a trial the other day, and the judge ruled, as I thought she would, that the children be returned. Not only did she rule the children be returned to the mother, she um, agreed that the children should be returned to both parents and that, uh, you know, based upon the testimony, uh, even though they were divorced, both parents, you know, seemed like they were willing to work with each other and had been working with each other with respect to uh, visitation. So uh, the children were released home of parents and custody, primary custody was with my client and children were going to visit with their dad, even overnight, um, you know, as agreed to and arranged by the parents. Now, the reason why I mention this story is because in a lot of these juvenile cases, unless you're going to go to trial and the social worker and her attorney know, or his attorney know that you're going to go to trial, they're in a lot of cases not going to recommend that the child be returned, especially in what they consider to be close cases. You know, um, I hear this all the time from clients. Well, it was recommended that I take a plea deal and that, you know, I do the services. And as long as I do the services, I'll get the child, you know, the children back. And then lo and behold, at the six-month date, the social worker, even though the parents have done what they're supposed to do, is not recommending the children be returned. So before you take a plea deal or before you submit on a hearing, six-month or 12-month hearing, make sure that you speak with your attorney or an attorney about having the children um, or having a trial in your case. At the trial that we had, This week, both the mother and father were present and had testified. Um, Generally, I would have called the parents, excuse me, the children. I didn't in this case because it wasn't necessary. And I didn't, normally I would call the service providers 
So my client's parenting instructor, the drug counseling facility, uh, the testing facility, the individual counselor. Um, But in this case, I didn't have to because the report from the social worker gave me a lot of positive information. So, you know, sometimes you need those witnesses, sometimes you don't. That's something that you should speak with your attorney about. Don't be afraid to have a trial or a contested hearing because it may be your only way to get your child back. A lot of people tell me, well, my attorney doesn't want to do a trial um, for this, that, or the other reason, and I can understand that. Um, But it's something that you should definitely speak to your attorney about. Um, And if you're going to have a trial, you want to make sure that you – You talk to the attorney about what witnesses are going to be subpoenaed, what documents are going to be subpoenaed, and what those subpoenaed witnesses, if those witnesses need to bring any any, uh, documents with them. So, you know, there has to be some preparation, of course, whenever you set the case for trial and whenever you're going to trial. In my office, one of the things that we do is we have a procedure where we prepare um, witness lists and exhibit lists and make sure that everybody's uh, subpoenaed to court so that there won't be any problem. Sometimes you're going to have a problem with getting witnesses to court, come to court, especially therapists and counselors who have their own practices. And, you know, they see people every day, and that's how they make their living. And sometimes they won't come to court. Um, I have had witnesses tell me, if you make me come to court, I'm going to testify negatively against your client. Yes, people have told me that. Um, Not a lot, not a lot of people, but people have told me that. Or they'll tell me something like, uh, if you make me come to court, I'm not sure that the testimony that I'm going to give is going to be what you think. And, you know, it's hard to prove somebody's trying to illegally retaliate against you because you're asking them or compelling them to come to court. And it's a fine line sometimes uh, before you bring a person in or subpoena a person in to make them get on the witness stand under oath and testify. Um, I have had it happen to me both ways where the witness did testify negatively against my client and I have had it where I was under the impression that they were going to testify negatively, but instead when they got on the witness stand, they, tested, they testified positively. So you never know. You know, witnesses are human beings. You never know what they're going to do and why they're going to do it. All you can do is cross your fingers and hope that they're going to tell the truth um, in, that, in their particular situation. So in the story that I was telling you about the trial this week, um, the children were returned to the parents and hopefully they will all live happily ever after. I'm also in the middle in another county, not Los Angeles, but another county, in an ongoing trial where I represent the mom. And uh, in this case, one of the fathers is being accused of sexually abusing uh, the oldest daughter. And in this particular case, it has been very important uh, so far with respect to the testimony of all the witnesses that have been subpoenaed, 
we've gotten on the stand and testified. The, the other thing that I've noticed is that um, when I've cross-examined and uh, direct-examined uh, some of the witnesses, uh, a couple of my co-counsel have uh, complimented me, um, and it's, you know, I've had a lot of training. So if you are looking for an attorney that uh, to represent you in a case like this, and if it's going to go to trial, you want to make sure but not only do they have the experience, but they have the training as far as being a trial lawyer. Um, I personally am a graduate of the Jerry Spence Trial Lawyers College. You could Google that and read upon that. I'm also a graduate of several uh, courses um, by the Trojan Horse Method. And the Trojan Horse Method was a, I, I call it an offshoot of the Trial Lawyers College. It's two former heavily involved trial lawyer college graduate graduates, uh, Dan Ambrose and Alejandro Blanco, who have kind of taken, um, you know, the skills, teaching the skills of trial lawyering uh, to another level, uh, a little bit above, in my opinion, of the trial lawyers college. But in my opinion also, because they are trial lawyers graduates, you need that trial lawyers um, foundation that you can only get from the Jerry Spence Trial Lawyers College and the classes that they offer. Um, if any of the listeners, if any of you want to have a free consultation, please give me a call at 888-888-6582. And you can call today after 930. My secretary will be working from about 930 to 5 on a Saturday. And we are open from uh, 7 a.m., to 9 p.m. Monday through Friday. I have to confess, I'm not here during all those hours. I sometimes am in court or, you know, I leave at, a, at 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. You can call and make those appointments. Also, you can find me on YouTube. Just go to youtube.com and uh, put my name in the search bar, Vincent Davis or Vincent W. Davis, and you'll see some of my instructional uh videos. You can also find me on the web at fightchildprotectiveservices.com, helpfightcps.com, and fcps, fcps.lawyer. That means fight child protective services.lawyer. A lot of people think it means something else, but that's not true. Um, I want to thank all of you for listening to me this uh, Saturday. Uh, next week, I hope to have a very uh, a surprise guest for you in the last half hour of the show. Uh, it's actually a very well-known CPS attorney from another state. Um, I'm talking to him to try to clear his schedule for next Saturday morning. So hopefully we'll, we will have that. Also, um, I've gotten a lot of positive from having a retired social worker, CPS social worker, Terry Greenstein, um, on our show, uh, he's an expert that we use in civil rights cases and in, and in juvenile law cases. So we're going to be having him back on the show as well in the future. So I'm going to sign off now, and thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week on the radio.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.